I'm gonna I'm gonna just be smiling you got R- the whole time. You got a case of RDF resting disengaged. I'm gonna hang you got rest, hang resting, on every word. You got resting disengaged face. Resting Drew face. Resting Drew face. Oh my gosh. It's the worst face to have. Um, ha! Doorman uh, face. You burn. Okay. All right. <clears throat> shall we? We shall. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 58 of the Goulet Pencast, where fountain pens are still a thing. I am Brian Goulet. I'm Drew Brown. And we are here from Goulet Pens to deliver this casual and informal, tangential and extraneous, superfluous and extemporaneous fountain pen show where we talk about what's going on at the Goulet Pen Company and in our fountain pen lives. Except today, because we're doing a special shortened episode. No life. (laughs) No life. We have no life this week. No life today. That's right. We are shooting a timeless episode. Not meaning that it's going to last forever and be valuable for all eternity, just that we're not going to talk about things quite as timely because... It, 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 exi- yeah. it exists outside of time and space. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, so we have a very ethereal episode. Um, mm. But basically, we're shooting this in advance so that I can uh, spend a little time off with my family. So uh, rather than just bailing on you all and saying, whatever, it's summer, who cares? We're like, you know what? It's really hot outside in a lot of places, and you may want to stay inside and listen to a Vencast while you... Do your dishes or fold your laundry or whatever. Clean your pens. So here we are. Um, But we wanted to keep things going for you all. So we put together this all Q&A episode for you where we're going to be talking about the purpose and hooded nibs. We're going to talk about chroma shading or dual shading inks. New upcoming trend. Uh, Some of my Rubik's Cube puzzles that I find to be the most elegantly painful. (laughs) How a dry climate can impact how a fountain pen dries out, and which Goulet team member has the penultimate pen collection. And we'll do a lightning round with a bunch of bonus questions as well. So won't be quite as long as a regular one. Drew was like, we can make this one really quick. And I was like, absolutely. And then he scrolled through the notes and was like, Brian, why got so many bullets in here, man? I was like, I can't help myself. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so we got no feedback, but we're basically just going to jump right into the Q&A questions. So that we are. Let's make it happen. All right, Drew. Okay. Question number one is from Dawn. And Dawn asks, some pens, such as the Lamy 2000, have hooded or covered nibs. Mm. Does this serve a function or is it simply a design element? Great question. My initial reaction was, yeah, it's kind of both. And then I was like, where did the hooded nib actually come from? Because I always knew like the Parker 51, that was kind of like the iconic hooded nib that I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I don't really know as much about the history of the Parker 51. Where could I learn about that? And uh, our buddy Richard Bender over at richardspens.com, he's... The original deep diver. Oh, he his entire website is just one gigantic deep dive. Um, He has more information that he's probably lost in different iterations of his website than we will probably ever know. So uh, especially if you're into vintage pens or pen history, he's, his website is a tremendous resource. So to give him full credit, I'm not trying to like plagiarize and rip off his stuff, but legitimately he has some good historical information on there. So I'm going to, I pulled some inspiration from there and I'm going to paraphrase some of what he spoke about in there. Um, but definitely go check his site out because it's really good and very pertinent to today's stuff. So, um, my uh, my thought was, you know, hooded nibs, 
uh, the probably the most prominent one that I think people are familiar with today, especially if you watch a Spencast, is the Lamy 2000 because I think that's the most popular pen that's made today that has a hooded nib. And um, as I got to thinking about it a little bit more, I was like, what other pens even have hooded nibs? Uh, we've got the Jinhao 51A, which is essentially a, I'll call it a re-inspired Parker 51. Uh, it's very, very heavily inspired <laughs> after the original. That is the original. Very nicely said. Very, very loosely, legally, uh, acceptably said. Uh, but the Parker came out with the, the new version of the 51. They didn't have it for a long time. They brought it back a couple of years ago. We don't carry that one, but um, it is out and about and around. So that's something you can check out. Other than that, uh, the Jinhao Shark Pen, maybe? Does that sort of count? That sort of counts, right? Uh, sort of. A little bit. Um, we, actually, we actually don't carry the 51A any longer. Really? At all? 51, no. I think the last time oh, you we mentioned were, we were, it, I, I, it was on I, the way out, huh? The last time you mentioned it, I was like, I don't think we carry that. And then Oops. I found out we still had one, well, but now, now, yeah, they're, they're gone. Well, it's still, it's still out there. It's still being made. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And then there was, uh, hmm. there was, let's see, Esterbrook did a semi-hooded nib a couple years ago. They the, did? Uh, Phaeton. Yep. That was, that was semi-hooded. Definitely vintage inspired as well. Yeah. A lot of the modern Aurora, the hooded Aurora had one, see. yeah. Aurora had the duo cart. Yep. yep. Yeah. So they're definitely bringing them back every now and then, yeah. obviously inspired from things that have come before. The 2000 is probably the only hooded or semi-hooded nib that has that that can claim to not be vintage inspired because it was around it's in still the vintage. era that we would now consider it's vintage. vintage. Yeah. So it's it's everything everything stable. else that you'll see modernly available is pretty heavily vintage inspired though. Absolutely. So I was kind of curious about that. I was as I was really reflecting on it after getting this question, I was like wow, there really aren't very many, or even some of the ones we've carried, like the 51A, like the, the Estabrook and the Aurora, for that matter. Um, they don't stick around very long. And I'm like, that's kind of curious. Why is that? Um, so that does help to inform maybe why you don't see them quite as much. Um, mm-hmm. So as I dove into it a little bit, I'll just kind of paraphrase some of the, some of the history of it from Richard's site. Um, the function was actually the original part of it. It was not the form. It was not the aesthetics of it that was the inspiration for it coming out originally. So a little bit of pen history. In the 1940s, when fountain pens were really like starting to hit their prime, they were more mainstream, kind of like the smartphone of the day. It was like the portable method of communication, the communication tool. There were typewriters. There were you know, still dip nibs and other things like that. The ballpoint wasn't, it was starting to be prototyped around that point, but they were not reliable. They were super expensive. So the fountain pen was really, really in their heyday around that time. Um, But the issue that a lot of people had was that the ink was smearing and they wanted it to dry faster and stuff like that. They didn't have the same ink technology that they have now. And even a lot of just the feed design and stuff like that um, was not where it is today. So there was much more of a problem with leaking and smearing and dry time and stuff like that. So they were um, essentially, um, Parker was inspired to come up with a faster drying ink, which is their, um, they called it the uh, 51 ink or something. uh, And it became known as a super chrome ink. So it was a uh, not super uh, healthy, not not kid friendly, definitely not a non toxic version of ink back at that time, uh, like many chemicals that were coming out in the 40s. Um, so they came out with this ink; it was faster drying, but it it needed to essentially have some sort of mechanism for keeping it wetter on the pen, or it would actually dry out in the feed 
uh, too quickly. So they designed mm. the pen around the concept of having an ink that would dry faster on the page. So at the time, they were touting that, like, you know, as you were writing, you could basically drag a finger like a half inch behind your writing as you were going, and it would already be dry. So super fast drying ink, which was pretty appealing, but at the same time, you know, it needed this kind of special pen. So they designed the Parker 51, which completely enclosed the nib and the feed and everything with the grip of the pen, which was hmm. novel for the time. And uh, that helped that helped to pair with that ink. Now you could use other inks in that pen, but you weren't supposed to use that super chrome ink in other pens or it would dry out too quick. Um, so that lasted a little while. And the Parker 51 was an amazingly popular pen at the time. Um, it actually inspired several other pens. In fact, I didn't even know this, Drew, but the Aurora 88, when it came out in 1947, had a hooded nib. And that is where the 88 got its start. So, wow, interesting. Yeah, the Parker 51 came out in 41, 1941. And then there were a couple other brands that came out with some hooded nibs, you know, kind of later in the decade. But, um, you know, it was pretty popular. But I think what happened is um, there were a couple things. You know, they they designed with the Parker 51, they designed essentially um, a new fins, like fin, fin system on the feed. Um, they, had, yeah. they had more fins. So there was like more ink that could be held in the, like the collector part of the, fe- right. the feed. Um, and I think what happened is other pen companies saw that design and ended up incorporating that into more conventional fountain pens with that exposed nib. And that helped the the fountain pens to last longer and not dry out so easily. So that in combination with the, the Super Chrome ink, which had some issues with it in itself, um, it just ended up being kind of complicated. And then, you know, honestly, the when you have a hooded nib, it doesn't really look like a fountain pen. It looks more like a ballpoint or something like that. It doesn't, you know, so I think that's part of the reason, especially in modern times today, why maybe you don't see popularity of a lot of hooded nib pens. I don't think we've really seen availability of a lot of them, but even the ones that we've seen come about, even ones we've carried ourselves and have touted quite a bit, you know, they're popular for a little while, but then they kind of fizzle out and it just doesn't have the staying power. I think part of that is because those who are into fountain pens now are like they do so by choice. And when you're looking at this big, bold, beautiful, striking nib with its wings just shining in the gleaming sun <laughs> and then you have this hooded nib with this little this little like little n- this little nubbin this little nubbin that's yeah. just kind of sticking out nubbin. there it's like you know the aesthetics i think actually work against it uh even though i think the functionality is better with a hooded nib because it does keep the nib wetter i think most modern pens and most modern inks are honestly good enough <laughs> for most people's functionality to keep the nib wet uh, except maybe in some extreme circumstances with some really quick drying inks um, where the hooded nib is not uh, necessarily worth the trade-off for most people. I think, you know, so over time, I think that's what's happened is you've had these hooded nibs that, you know, maybe aren't as necessary anymore. They do make a difference in terms of how long the ink will stay wet in a pen. Um, but I think, honestly, a lot of it has to do with the feed system, which a lot of them have really good feed systems now. Um, the modern inks, which are better at staying wet, and you have better capping. So I think just with a lot of pens that have cap inserts and things like that that are better at staying sealed, you know, improvements of plastics over what they were in the mid-1900s, um, you have a lot of pens that are staying wetter. So then as you're writing, you know, it's just not, you, your, your nib itself is not exposed to the air all that much. 
and a lot of people are used to capping and uncapping. We have a lot more, you know, snap caps and stuff like that today than maybe there were back in the day. I don't know that for a fact. I just completely made that up. But that's my guess is that, you know, yes, it does make a difference. But I think today with all these factors involved, it's it's going to be pretty heavily a design choice to do it. And I think most people just don't want to hide the nibs. So you don't see a whole lot of them. Yeah, and there's not really a... I've never personally used a hooded nib or even semi-hooded nib that was easy to totally disassemble either. Mm. Every hooded nib I've ever tinkered with has been quite difficult. And that just from a maintenance standpoint is challenging. But then from a manufacturing standpoint, it's pretty much the same thing. If it's hard to take a point, uh, if it's hard to take apart from the consumer, it's going to be hard to manufacture and assemble mm-hmm. at the factory. So yeah. if you're making a hooded nib, you need to basically say, okay, it's going to be a proprietary grip, a proprietary nib. You can't just have your normal pilot nib and then throw a hood on it because of those big wings. You're unless you're going to have some big bulbous looking hood, um, like some Sith Lord or something, but it's not going to look good. It's not going to have that, that that sleek profile. It's going to be big, billy, and lumpy. Um, like a, so. Sith, a Sith Lord? What, like, you know how they've got those like the big got hood? giant hoods. Like li- yeah, literally massive like hoods, hoods over their heads. Yeah, so like you've wow. got your standard raincoat that's like, all right, I'm going to cover my head. And then you've got the Jedi and Sith. They're like, I need this massive thing that like drapes over most of my face and billows onto my shoulders. It's, mm. That's too much hood. It's too much hood. And that's what would happen if you tried to hood a number six nib. That's true. Now, if you could if you could do that, then more people would probably just make a grip section that can cover number six nib. But again, it's going to look stupid. Nobody's going to like it. Well, and then like um, the, you know, whatever you put on the grip, you got to fit it inside the cap too. So then you would need. Oh, yeah. You would, you would, <laughs> Your cap would be obnoxious. You would end up with like a space balls, you know, uh, yeah. I forget the character's name. Not, not The Darth Vader character. Dark helmet. Dark helmet. You'd end up with a cap that looks like that on the pen. <laughs> Yeah, You know, it's a your now, Sith Lord cloak hood on your number six nib. I think that if they wanted to, Lamy could probably do that with their nibs. They're small enough. Yeah. They're ni- they're narrow enough. If they wanted to adapt a form of grip section that fit onto the front and hooded it, yeah. they probably could. But then you're talking 100% aesthetics because those don't have exposed fins anyway. Yeah. All of their fins are within the grip that would section. Be, so you're that not would be gaining anything. Yeah, you're not gaining any operational I mean, benefit there. I could argue also, because somebody's probably just like screaming at their computer and or phone right now, saying like, what about retractable nibs like a Pilot mm-hmm. Vanishing Point or a Platinum Curados or you know something like that, Lonnie Dialog 3 for that matter. Like those are technically hooded nib pens you know they're retractable but you know Mm -hmm. the effect that you get with something like a vanishing point or a decimo for that matter um they've got you know thin thin nibs that you like what you would see if it were on a a hooded nib uh pen yeah yeah you know they're just the hood is is you know a trap door that allows allows the nib unit to retract so i mean technically if pilot wanted to they could take that same nib that they already have for the vanishing point they could, you know, kind of take the guts of it and just build it around a solid body, you know, and make it. Um, I don't see why they couldn't do that. They could make it. A, I a think that would be really cool, actually. That I would be really kind of like cool, right? Pilot. Like take a... I, I really like that pilot nib. I know that it's built to be functional inside of the capless body, but it's a it really good riding nib yeah, it and have to a be really reliable nib. Yeah, it doesn't have to no, be. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I'd love to see that put on another pen just with a standard cap. Yeah. In fact... You know, we have a video that's going to be coming out. I've already shot it. It's in the editing stages right now where I go through, like, 
Uh, just like I did with the Sailor nibs, went through everything in like pretty great detail, lots of macro imagery and stuff like that. Um, got a same one that's going to be coming out on the Lamy 2000. Take the whole thing apart, show you the nib, go through every nib size. Um, you'll see there, um, it's actually kind of like a like kind of like a miniaturized version of what you see with the typical Lamy steel or the 14K nib. Uh, that Lamy 2000 nib kind of has wrap around like that. It's not compatible with the other ones because it is smaller to fit through the hood there. Um, but you can you can see an example of something that's you know, not that far off from something like a Lamy nib. So, I mean, for sure, pen companies could design hooded nibs even around some of the pens they already have if they wanted to just for a design aesthetic. But I don't think, you know, just from what we've seen, I don't think the demand is really there to justify all that effort. I mean, we could be wrong about that. Yeah, I don't don't know because they've definitely tried to do it. I So I don't know if it's the fact that they tried to do it and it didn't work mm. or they tried to do it and no one was interested. Yeah, because there's some, I mean, you can't just like come out with it and be like, here it is, want it now. It's like there needs to be a compelling kind of reason if there's not a natural inclination. Yeah, for I don't it, know if know? anybody's asking for it, to be honest. I don't know. Maybe we could be. Because there, there, are, there are plenty of places you can still get vintage hood and ni- hooded nibs that have been restored. For sure. And they're not, they're not that expensive. No, in fact, there's so many millions, millions of Parker 51s out there. I mean, it's one of the yeah. most so, collectible vintage pens that you can get. So honestly, if you want to try some hooded nibs, getting a vintage Parker 51, I'm sure you can find them on like eBay and every pen show is going to have. I mean, there are literally vendors there where they all they have is Parker 51s restored and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it's a very now granted. I haven't been like super hot on the scene the last couple of years. I don't think it's really changed, but um, you know, I think that the, I think that the Parker Fifty One is a pretty safe bet as a as a collectible pen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the authority on that though. I don't really live in the vintage world so much, but I know no, that neither do I. It was one of the most popular fountain pens in history, so I think it's pretty pretty safe bet. You can still find them pretty easily, and I've got a couple of them too. I don't have them here with me at home. I've got them in the office there, but um, they're great pens. Still, they still write today. So pretty, pretty good. You know, they'll hold up for a good 60, 70, 80 years and still keep on trucking. That's a uh, pretty solid design. So there you go. That's what we got. I'd be happy if I lasted that long. Yeah, right. All right. That's all we got for the 50, the uh, blah, 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 hooded nibs. Yeah. Moving on. Question from Chantal. It says, I know about shading as a property of inks, but lately I've been hearing about dual shading and chromo shading what's the deal with that drew i know you've been playing with some <laughs> that's of these. a really good question i've been thinking about that a lot chantal mm. and in fact where while brian was making his lamy video i was making a video about chromo shading inks not necessarily a very informative video because these inks are kind of like what you see is what you get. Look, there it is. That's chroma shading. But I did want to take some time to showcase a lot of this ink because they are coming out with more and more. Sailor especially is really ramping this up. And I wanted to at least display and showcase some of what makes these inks really special, which is essentially just shading. However, the shading concept that we're most familiar with is when you have a color, usually a lighter color, like a light blue or a lightish orange, you put down the ink and then where the ink pools, either when it uh, collects on like paper that is kind of cr- crinkled up or something, or generally when you lift your pen, you leave a little bit of a pool behind. Wherever it pools is usually 
darker than the rest of the strokes. You get these kind of pooling points, either within your swab or within your writing. So you create like, you know, dark blue, light blue, dark blue, light blue, dark blue, light blue, or more or less light blue, lighter blue, light blue, lighter blue. So it's usually with very low saturated inks, not a lot of really dense looking inks, but uh, it's usually just those two. It's, it's the light color and then a lighter version of that color kind of mixed in here and there. With chromo shading inks, Sailor, uh, some Ferris wheel press, some Colorverse, and then some brands that we don't carry and I'm not educated about have these inks that are referred to as either dual shading, chromo shading, multi-tonal. There's a bunch of different terms for them, but they do the shading thing. But in addition to that, they also show off one, two, three, sometimes different colors, like entirely different colors. It could be a pink and an orange or a blue and a green or a blue and a purple or sometimes blue, green, and purple, all three together. And it's really incredible. And it's a really, really fun writing experience. It, like many, many inks, like shading, shimmering, or shimmer, does show off its properties much, much better on a paper with high uh, coating like Tomoe River. So that will always and, you know, is always the go-to show-off paper. So mm-hmm. if you do if you do have some of that, this will really show it off but i have been playing with a lot of these recently uh in in an attempt to make a video that showcases some of the better ones and i've found that uh the sailor monyo inks are a great place to start if there is a high concentration of chromo shading inks in a brand that we carry the sailor collection the subset monyo collection Mm -hmm. probably the the most target rich environment yeah and then uh, the newer inks that we've come out with in the uh, Monyo line, specifically uh, Koke, Fuji, and... Uh, well, Koke and Fuji are probably my two favorites. There are more, but those, those I think, are the two heaviest hitters. And then uh, an older one, the Sailor uh, Monyo Neko Yonagi. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very popular ink. But yeah. Sailor Haha is the most popular. Not only the most popular Monyo, most popular chromo shading, but it is, in fact, the most popular ink that we sell currently under the Sailor line in its entirety. So, yeah. so it, is, it, is, it is a popular one, and for good reasons. There's also a subset of Sailor called Yurameku, and within that line, there is an ink called Amamoyoi, and that one is very pretty as well. I was playing with that one during this video, Brian, and it almost looked kind of camouflage. It was like hmm. a green, dark green, lightish green, mm. brownish, like just a really, really fun ink once it dried too. And of course, my favorites, uh, Sailor Ink Studio 123 and 224, which I like to call rain fluff and thunder fluff. <laughs> and finally, one ink that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to, I alluded to it earlier, but during my preparation for this video, I kind of rediscovered is Sailor Ink Studio 173. And whereas a lot of these chromo shading inks have tones of blue, purple, gray, and sometimes emerald, this one's totally out there with pink and orange. It's like pink and peach almost. And it's it's just out there. It literally, I swiped it on Tomoe River and Tomoe 52 gram paper has this habit of crinkling up because it's so, so thin mm-hmm. when it gets saturated with liquid It crinkles up like, you know, a a napkin or something, something very, very thin. And when it does that, when it crinkles, it creates this wave. And within that wave, obviously, you have peaks and valleys. So the ink pools in the valleys and is thinner up at the peaks. So you get that amazing pooling effect. So if you've got an ink that has shimmer sheen shading or chromo shading, you're going to get a lot of really incredible things happening in those pools. And this ink was no exception. So it literally, on the valleys... 
in the valleys it was you know peach in the peaks it was pink and it just did that like like a just a segmented pattern it was really really beautiful so that was really fun for me to experience. Uh, stay tuned, obviously, if you want to subscribe to the channel, you'll see the video pop up here in the next couple of weeks. We're not really sure exactly which one's coming out first or second. We're figuring that out now, but it'll be there. And if you wanted to check out some of these inks that I mentioned, I'll have them in the comments below as well. Yeah, keep in mind, we're we're recording this almost three weeks in advance as well. So we may, we may have even, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. It's like, oh, we might already have a couple of these videos out by the time we let this one go. But anyway. Maybe. Um, I have no idea. Now, my question for you, Drew, you know, since you played with these a little bit more, you're talking about like the wrinkly nature of the paper and all that kind of stuff. Are you talking like doing full on swabs and like dumping ink on there? It's not like wrinkling up as you're writing with it, right? Like, no, no. One, but, 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 yeah. but no, no. But one swab. Like one quick swab will do it. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot. It's not like I'm like going over it multiple times, but one single swipe yeah. of a cotton swab will wrinkle up the paper. It's mm. it's it's that thin. It's if you've angry. ever written with Tomoe 52, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But with the writing, you'll get that pooling when you lift up the paper. And I know that I've mentioned this to you before, mm -hmm. Brian. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the pen cast, but when I'm writing with inks that I know have a shading aspect to them, I'll actually adapt my writing to write a little bit more in a print cursive hybrid so that I can lift my pen up more frequently mm. and create more of those pooling spots so that I get that uh, multi-tonal effect. Or I would say if you were going to write with, you know, a flex nib or something, a music nib, something generally wetter, you're going to get more of those chromo shading aspects to it, right? Yeah, So absolutely. Uh, the finer the nib, the less you're going to see. Yeah, and the more absorbent the paper, the less you're going to see. It's kind of like shimmer or sheen in that respect, right? It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it's got, so I would say like in terms of, you know, planning to use a pen that, and a paper that you get more of those characteristics, you can pretty much go by the same principles that you would for shimmer or sheen, right? It's basically the higher the concentration of the ink you put down, the more you get whatever the properties are, right? That's right. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I'm curious to see if it's going to be like a newer trend of like more of this starts coming out. I mean, obviously people like it and more people buy it. It's going to become like shimmer, right? Where, you know, it took, I don't know, the better part of five years, seven years before shimmer really started to grab hold. You know, I think about like mm -hmm. the 1670s uh, with the urban inks that really started to have some shimmer. Um, Sheen had a little bit longer, a little longer life to it. Shimmer really started to, you know, that was like a thing that happened in like 2010 onward. Um, but now there are so many shimmer inks, so hundreds, literally. Yeah. I wonder if uh, chromo shading is like the next, the next wave. Um, I, don't know. I think so. I think that, uh, I, yeah, I think it's super popular. I don't, I, I'm wondering if any of the other major ink brands like Diamine or some of the other Japanese brands are going to crack the code that Sailor has been able to figure out and actually start producing some of these things. Cause Pilot's never really been known as an ink company, but it does seem like they're paying a little bit closer attention, giving us a little bit more in the Iroshizuku space, finally coming out with cartridges and things like that. Mm. So I don't know. Maybe they'll maybe they'll do something fun. We will see. Time will tell. That would be cool. Yeah, I think about like... But for now, but for, for now Sailor's the champ. Yeah, I know you see a lot of variety with shimmer inks because you can essentially add a shimmer property to basically whatever ink you want. And there's different colors of shimmer yeah. and stuff. Sheening... It's been a little tougher. It's been a little tougher because I think the properties of the, of the dyes that actually do a sheen, you're limited in what colors will actually sheen, what, you know, sheening the result of it, what color comes as a, res, you know, 
like the base color of whatever you use, they tend to be really saturated, like blues and purples and pinks and stuff like that. Like you don't really see a lot of like browns or oranges or whatever with sheen. I think it's just whatever dyes, there's certain certain dye families that bring that sheen out more. Um, I wonder if it's gonna be like that with chroma shading. I don't know enough about the ink chemistry and the dye chemistry that is bringing out the chroma shading. I wonder if you have you know, a lot of options or if it's all gonna be in this like light blue, gray, kind of green territory. And if it kind of like- it's the, It seems that way. There are some outliers, but you're right. I think that right now you're starting to see yeah. that most things hover around the light blue area. Yeah, and if that's the case, if it's all kind of within a certain range of colors then you're only gonna see but so many of them come out, right? So yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on it. I'm gl- yes, glad indeed. to see it coming out. So yeah, very cool. We've got a really funky question from Alan, Brian, oh. that I put on here because I think you'd have a response to it. So <laughs> Al, you and Alan have some similar interests. Mm. So Alan says, my son has really gotten into cubes and similar puzzles and has been solving the easy ones we get him too fast. What's something that Brian thinks is appropriately grueling mm. that might take him a while? Well... I have a lot. Brian, a known a known cube enthusiast. I am a cube enthusiast. It's really funny because the other day, I, I told Rachel's parents about this. Rachel's parents just visited this past weekend. I'm not sure if I talked about this on the pencast or not. I talk a lot and then I forget who I tell what. But it was funny because I was I, do the same thing. I was walking with Joseph to go out to the workshop or go somewhere with him. And he just kind of asked me out of the blue. He's like, you don't really have a lot of hobbies, do you? And I was like do you like know me at all? (laughs) But it's just one of those. What? It's just the same reason. Like when my kids talk about like, you literally built a shelf with him last week. So I had to, I had to dig in a little bit and I'm like, what do you mean exactly? He doesn't. Why would you say that? It's just his 12 year old brain. He doesn't, he doesn't view that as a hobby. He, He thinks hobbies are like video games and Legos and the stuff that he's into. You know what I mean? He doesn't view like whatever yard work and, puzzles and I guess the puzzles he was like oh yeah I kind of forgot about those I'm like how do you forget about them they're all over the house <laughs> <laughs> like wherever the kids socks are that's where my puzzles are too you know um so uh yeah it was kind of funny so just just my own son who knows me really really well I had to remind him of like well I do woodworking and I am into fountain pens and puzzles and I had to remind him of all these different things like I do cycling I do all this kind of stuff I have lego technics and he was like, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess those are hobbies. You know, I was just like, dude. <laughs> Brian, why don't you play more Minecraft and Sonic? That's your problem. Pretty much. Pretty much. But I told him it was a good lesson. I was like, you know, my hobbies are are a little more practical. He was like, those are so practical. He's like, you're, you're doing stuff. You're building things. I was like, yeah. Well, I was like, you know, I have a lot going on. I'm business and the family and all that kind of stuff. So I said, my hobbies tend to be more practical because that allows me to afford the time to do them more. If I'm actually like other people benefit from my hobbies, you know, otherwise I would hardly ever get to do these things if I had to truly justify just completely just taking up time for myself. That's a good point. That's a good point. So I I always lean towards wildly practical hobbies that, because then it's like, if my hobby is like building stuff for other people, they're like, oh yeah, please like go in the workshop and build stuff because they're going to benefit from it. And I'm like, sweet. And it's easier for me to spend more time doing it. Anyway, that's tangent, but, uh, Puzzles, puzzles are something that are not beneficial to anybody else, really, except, uh, you know, I enjoy them. And uh, so that was a kind of a me thing. Uh, but it also just helps me to like, I don't know, it's, it's like a fidget toy sort of a thing. And it helps keep my mind occupied. And honestly, it was really good. I started doing the puzzle thing 
I think when I first solved a Rubik's cube, it was, I would think I was 30 years old. So this was like eight years ago, maybe. I just YouTubed video about how to do it. And the videos then were not that great. There's so many more videos out now. But I was like, you know, I, I, I make fountain pen videos. There's probably people that have videos on how to solve a Rubik's cube. So I found this like really, really awfully rudimentary video and studied it. And after a month or so, I was able to solve it on my own. And then I memorized the algorithms and I was able to do it. And then I forgot for a couple of years and then I kind of came back to it. <laughs> Actually, the one who re-inspired me back to it was um, uh, David Parker, Fig Boot on pens. Uh, he and I are buddies and ran into him at a DC pen show back in, I don't know, 2015, 2016, something like that. And, uh, you know, he was a, he's a cuber as well. And he was like, yeah, I'm trying to get to where I can solve a three by three Rubik's cube in under 30 seconds. And I was like, that seems like a cool goal. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll pick it back up again. And I kind of relearned and bought some better cubes and stuff like that. And that's sort of like what re-inspired me, you know, about five years ago or so. And now I've really been, really been into it. And it's kind of like, you know, this whole fountain pen thing, like the more you know me, you're like, oh yeah, Brian does this like with everything in his life that he gets into. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a pattern now. Um, so yeah, for me, uh, you know, I, I did put some thought into, I haven't even touched on my bullet points yet. This is gonna be a long one, Drew. Sorry. I totally lied about, I'll try to do this quick. Nope. Don't worry, folks. We've got chapter markers. So yeah, with puzzles, there's a few different ways to be, to be challenged. Uh, it's kind of different for everybody. Um, I would say definitely the most popular route to go is speed cubing. So that's, there's competitions around it, basically solving puzzles as fast as you can. And there's timers. They actually make specific timers that have like hand like stop and start things that are literally designed for solving puzzles and i've seen those and it's not just like oh what a weird thing no there's like i'm talking well over half a million like actual competitors that have competed worldwide it's an amazingly popular thing mostly teenagers um or younger (laughs) mostly not 30 year olds running a business but uh you know, whatever we're going to do. So I, I did that a little bit. I've never competed in anything, uh, but I've, you know, timed myself with like apps on my phone and stuff like that. And yeah, when we were flying to Italy, you were doing that on the plane. Mm-hmm. You had your little timer out. Yeah. Yeah. It was fright. It was frighteningly fast. Yeah. I mean, I can, you, you were, you, you got down to 30 seconds, didn't I've, you? I've solved under 30 seconds a number of times. I've never like That's crazy. averaged under 30 seconds, you know, and I, I probably, could get there it's actually harder for adults because our response time and our brains just don't work as quick as younger folks oh i know that yeah uh, so that definitely plays out so yeah you see like all the world competitive speed cubers and like 15 i mean like the record for solving a three by three race cube i think is 3.47 seconds it's it's kind of amazing with a raw scramble so like they pick it up you get 15 seconds to review it whatever the pattern is there's 43 quintillion combinations that it could be so you really don't know what you're going to get you know it's like i'm sure i've shared that at some point in the pen cast but i mean literally of even with a half million people that are speed cubing over and over and over and over and over and over again on practicing and stuff it hasn't even been like a fraction of a percent of the combinations that people have even seen yet of all the cubes that have ever been done it's amazing so many combinations anyway okay again having Stick to the bullets, Brian. Stick to the bullet points. This is going to be so long. I'm sorry. I put this on speed here. Cubing, this so speed cubing is by far the most popular way. Um, there are specific puzzles that are done in competitive spaces. 3x3, three 4x4, three, 5x5. Four four, five five. It goes all the way up to 7x7. Seven seven. They have other ones called a um, like a Mega Minx. So it's like a, a dodecahedron shape. Um, I just realized this is actually not a 
competitive Megaminx cube. It's a it's a I was, variant. I was about to, I was about to say yeah. It's a variant of it, but uh, anyway. Yeah, get so that have, out of here. So there's some different shapes that are more or less, I guess if you want to call it, on the basic side, which is still not basic. They're still complicated, but um, the ones that people can solve in like a matter of seconds with enough practice. Um, and and really the focus on that is. It kind of makes sense if you think about like teenagers, they don't have a lot of money, but a good cube is not that expensive and they have tons and tons and tons of time. So they just solve over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And they memorize tons of algorithms. Um, your average speed cuber who's super competitive memorizes something like 400 different algorithms. And then it's all about muscle memory of doing the different like finger tricks and stuff and then visual recognition. So you recognize a certain pattern, you do the thing to get it to the next step and you're just doing that super 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 fast so it's, it's just super fast practice like anything else um and that's how you get really good and i was like well that's fun but like what's my end goal with that personally not not much i'm just solving the same thing so like i i solve it more just for relaxation kind of fidgeting that kind of thing um <laughs> but what i really personally enjoyed is getting into different variants of puzzles you know it's cool to have a three by three but if i can have you know, a three by three, like, uh, like this one, that's got like a maze kind of a pattern to it. So not only do I have to solve it with the right colors, but the orientation of the pieces have to be right in order for the lines to match up. So I can actually solve this and have the right colors in the right spot, but then the pieces won't be turned the right way. So it's like, oh, I have to know not only how to do a regular three by three, but I have to think about a few extra little things. So that's more of what I've enjoyed about the puzzles is I'm not just solving the same thing over and over again and doing it faster, but I'm getting other puzzles. I'm like, oh, this one is this one is slightly different. I have to do a few extra things when I solve this one, you know, than I do with a regular one. Or there's like collectible ones that I get into, like this Lego, you know, one, which is fun because my son, my son and I both love Lego. But you can literally like take them off. I mean, it's easy to solve because you can take the bricks off and just put them on the <laughs> side. Of, you know, you can like put like minifigs on it and stuff. So it's more of a design aspect. Or um, you know, there's other ones like these conjoined ones, right? So like you're solving multiple cubes, but you can't turn it certain orientations. So you end up with additional constraints that have things. So it's like I can learn a lot of the same movements and algorithms, but then with a slightly different variation of puzzle, it's like, oh, there's a, this one's a little bit different. So I'm sort of like building a repertoire of algorithms depending on the style of the puzzle. Uh, so that's what I've really enjoyed um, with my personal puzzle solving. Um, so that's one way to go is with different variations. Then there are different size puzzles. Um, you know, for example, I have the, the dodecahedron shape, which has, you know, its own sort of algorithms, but then you can get ones with many more layers to it. So this is also a dodecahedron, but it's got multiple layers. Um, you know, so this is a, is it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So it's an 11 layer. So literally you can turn in every single one. And ah! it ends up looking like absolute chaos. Fix it, fix it. Thing in there. And this, fix and this it. like, Stop it. yeah, so I've solved this and scrambled it multiple times. Ah. Um, but then I did this like star pattern to it because I thought that it was fun, right? And then the star pattern is actually not that complicated to do in the grand scheme, but you know. So I like the big puzzles with lots of layers because you can not only solve them and stuff, but you can actually create patterns to it. And to show another example of that, I have this 15 by 15 cube where I solved it, but then um, I did it in this like sort of like diamond sort of pattern um, to make this, this layout, which is pretty sweet. 
but I mean, it's, it's, you turn it through and through. These tend to be pretty expensive because there's so many pieces. Um, they actually have videos and stuff where people are like actually break these apart and take them out into all their separate pieces because it all has to be connected to a central core that everything turns around. So you end up with this like tiny little piece, but it's got this like really jaggedy kind of thing that's got to connect all the way to the middle and be able to slide around it. So the engineering behind these is actually quite complex, complex and really fascinating. Um, I think the biggest, the highest ordered production puzzle they have right now in a traditional Rubik's form is a 21 by 21 and it's like $1,500. It's amazingly expensive. And I'm like, okay, I'm not that into it, but you know, over time, they keep developing more and then you get ones like this. So, so these are fun, oh My God! but like, you know, I can solve a regular three by three in 30, 40 seconds. This one takes me like three and a half hours or something like that, just cause it's so many pieces, so many turns, but the algorithms are not that much more complex. There's just so many more pieces. It just takes a long time. So it's more of an endurance thing. It's kind of a different, I can, you know, pick it up and solve like one layer and then I'll like come back and pick it up later. So it's more of a longstanding thing. Um, but then you can get into other types of puzzles, which are, so these are all like through and through where there's like a central core and there's all these layers that rotate around. You get into other puzzles like this one, which looks really big and complex, right? And it is to a degree, Yeah. but um, it's a face turning puzzle. So it, there's a hollow core inside of here and everything, everything that I'm turning is on, on the face and I'm moving pieces just around the kind of exterior of the puzzle. So slightly different construction. Some of the complexity that you get with these ones ends up being where, um, you know, this is called the, this is one of my favorite puzzles. It's called the truncated icosidodecahedron. <laughs> so you get into some really fun geometric names as well. Um, so the one with this is you have, uh, let's see here, it's 12 sides on here, four sides on here, six sides on here. And it, so like they all intersect with each other. So there are on, on, like certain shape pieces can only be in certain places. So it's actually, there's fewer algorithms that you have to learn to solve a puzzle like this than there is even just on a regular three by three, because there's only so many places that each piece can go. Um, but the challenge with it is you end up with so many different colors that are so close to each other. And half the time you're just like hunting and searching, like where is that slightly dark green, but not that dark, but that is that all the way over here? And you're like, how do I how do I like maneuver it and get it all the way over to where I need to go? Um, so not only that, but this, the company that makes this, their brand is very puzzle. Um, almost all of these come from Asia too, by the way. Um, so the company that makes this one, you actually assemble it yourself. So they send you the kit, all the pieces, the stickers and everything. So I freaking love that because I love building stuff. It's sort of like building a model kit where there's like all these plastic pieces and you got to like snap them all out and kind of put it together. And then you also understand better like how the thing is actually constructed. So I have a number of really big puzzles like this where um, I've actually had to assemble them and put the stickers on and stuff. And I, I love it. That's as enjoyable to me as it is even learning how to solve the puzzle. But the problem with ones like these is there are not that many people that do them. <laughs> so uh, I definitely have some of these bigger puzzles where I'm like, okay, this one's sort of similar to this puzzle that I know about, but I don't quite know how to actually solve like the final steps of this one. And I definitely have that with a couple of puzzles. Um, like this next one, I'll show you. So I have this one, which is another face, ah! it's a face turning puzzle, but it, it still has like two layers to each little section here. Um, I'm this close to solving it. I just have this little bit at the end here 
and I just can't. It's always hardest to solve the very end of a puzzle. I, wow. I have not yet done it. There are no videos out there. I'm on my own trying to figure it out. It's just too dang complicated. And Well, Brian, it sounds like you need to do a video on that. There are some videos out there. There's a guy, Pete the Geek. I thought you said there were none. Well, there's videos out there of like some bigger puzzles like this. A, a lot oh. of them are unboxings and people are just kind of showing them. There are definitely fewer ones where people are like showing how they actually solve them, especially because some of them take like seven hours, you know? So it's like, <laughs> you got to really want it. Um, but anyway, it's all part of the fun, right? So it's a, it's a beautiful pain. Um, and then just to keep it moving along, oh, I just wanted to show this cute little, I have a little three by three here. It's the, the oh smallest God. one I have. So it's functional, you know, it's fully functional. So it like turns, you know, so that's kind of fun. So there's like little collectibles oh, wow. like this that aren't that practical, but are still fun. Um, and then I have the last category, which are ones that are just, just frustrating, you know, just either. Are these the ones that you're recommending for Alan's son? It depends on what degree of son pain you want to put your son through. Um, <laughs> His behavior recently. Yeah. So like the ones with lots of layers or lots of pieces. Those just take a long time and they take endurance and willpower to do them, but they're not super complicated. Mm -hmm. These other ones are complicated and frustrating because there's other stuff going on. So I'll show a couple of the ones that I uh, really just don't enjoy that much. But um, this one's kind of cool, but I've not yet solved it. It's a Sudoku cube. So, you know, Sudoku is where you have like nine numbers in a square and it's in like a whole grid pattern. Well, it's a cube where you should be able to do a, a Sudoku on here, but it's just so dang confusing, <laughs> especially cause I'm like trying to, I'm like trying to orient the numbers correctly. And I'm like trying to make sure it's basically where you're only supposed to have one number in per side and one number per row and all this stuff. And it's just thinking about it in a 3d fashion like this. No, honestly, that that's a little triggering for me. Just looking at it. If you just, if you told me, imagine like, like, if you hooked me up to some sort of monitor and said, picture a cube and every square of the cube is covered in a number like that right there that like I'm, I'm yeah. getting anxious. Seriously. Just like, especially because I want you to put it away. Well, I want you to put that away. Yeah. Especially because it's three dimensional and you know, when you get, especially when you get to like the second and third layers, as you're solving it, mm -mm. you have to mix everything up. So you have to know the algorithms well enough to be able to essentially do it from memory and then know where the pieces should have gone so that you can do the next few algorithms and then it should eventually end up to where you're trying to get it to go. So you'll do that and then you're like, okay, did I do that right? I don't think that's in the right place now. There's two eights there, crap. Okay, which is that? So this one is like, I have not yet solved this one. It's, it's pretty painful. Let's put, let's keep that one away. All of the other ones <laughs> up until that one, I'm like, oh cool, fun, colors, yay. Yeah. They look confusing, but still fun. Yeah. That did not look fun at all. This is another pretty frustrating what? one. This is a official Rubik's brand. This is the, impo oh, the Impossible Cube. I sent you this one and you said, yeah, I already have that. I had like three people send me this cube because they know I'm into cubes. Yeah. Uh, this yeah, one, you I can actually find it like in Target and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so basically they have holographic stickers to them that change color as you move the cube. So I, you know, it comes in a solved state when you get it, but that as soon as you mix it up, you're like, well, wait a minute. You're like, that one is only green. This one's green, but it's orange crap. And then you're like, wait a minute, that's not the right place. And it's like, oh man, <laughs> it, this is really confusing. So have you solved it yet? I have not. I don't think oh, so. Man. I don't think I've solved it fully. Maybe it's solved right now. I don't think so. It's, it's hard <laughs> because when, even when you solve it, it doesn't look 
totally, totally, you know, assault because it's a holographic. Anyway, oh, man, so ones like that are brutal. are a test of pain. And then I have another one that is just one of the absolute worst that I have not solved. As soon as I broke it to a certain point, I just stopped and I haven't touched it again. Um, so this is called the Sun Minx. So it's a dodecahedron pattern, but you can turn the faces of it, um, you know, like a normal cube. It's also like kind of tight and doesn't flow really well. So it's not mm. like super enjoyable to turn. It's kind of stiff. Um, so what's interesting about this one, it's a shape shifter as well, as you can see. So not only can you turn a face of the puzzle, but if you turn it partially, <gasps> then you can turn it again and, oh, and no. you can actually like move it so that your pieces end up jagged and mixed up. Oh no. But what's particularly confusing about this puzzle is the underlying construction of this. There's like a piece that you actually can't see that has to line up to the piece that you can see on the top in order for it to be able to rotate back in a certain place. So you have to basically like kind of press down and inspect inside. It's kind of a little bit of a design flaw, I think, of the way they made this particular puzzle. So it it can be done, but if you scramble it in a certain way, which you can't even really keep track of. I was just trying to like scramble two layers of it. And then I like did something and I was like, oh crap, I didn't mean to do that. And I tried to get it back and I just made it worse. And this is what it looks like now. And I was like, I wasn't even really trying to scramble it. And I was like, oh crap. (laughs) <laughs> oh man that that sounds like it's probably not all the way you that sounds like it's not a super well-made thing yeah but i mean there are people who are on youtube and stuff like that who are really into it and honestly some of the people who get really into it most of them tend to be you know more on the adult side um they end up um actually like 3d printing their own puzzles they design their own you know they'll take a an existing puzzle core structure and shape it differently on the outside and it kind of creates a new shape of puzzle so the whole the whole puzzle thing, especially in the last like decade or so, has exploded in popularity in so many puzzle variants now. Like I really got into it at an exciting time. Um, so that's been pretty neat to just keep up with new puzzles that come out. Um, but it's very much of a, a user-driven, like community-driven thing um, to the point where like some of the some of the puzzles that you see now are ones who are essentially designed by you know puzzle enthusiasts, and then they worked with a company, and now it's a mass-produced puzzle. So. You know, it's pretty it sounds neat. like from what you've said that Alan's kid could probably use one of the impossible ones just to keep him occupied. And then maybe one of the larger endurance ones that you mentioned earlier. That's not like really hard, but just takes a long time. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy, I mean, it all depends on kind of what you're into. Like, honestly, for, for younger kids, I think, you know, getting more into like the speed cubing kind of side of it is pretty fun because you you learn dexterity, you learn focus. There's a huge community around speed cubing and that's that's most of what uh the younger folks end up doing is there's tons of youtube channels and all that kind of stuff so um you know it's really really good for that so it's a great way for somebody younger who's into puzzles to to plug into more of a community when you get into the weird stuff like i am you're really kind of off on your own and it can be kind of (laughs) lonely when you're solving those big weird puzzles not unlike if you're into pens and you get into, you know, the really popular aspects of pens. There's lots of people. But then you get into, like, really obscure vintage restoration and stuff. You're like, ah, oh, there's, like, nobody that knows what they're, what you know, it's like the information's out there, but I got to really go find it. That's kind of where I am in this territory. So, yeah. But anyway, that's more than anybody probably cared about with my little puzzle obsession. But uh, ah, it's been a... Really I love the passion, time. though. I really do. It's been my my weird thing that it's like, you know, I mean, I love pens, of course. But, um, 
you know, it's just nice to have another little outlet, another little... Oh, you know, we all have thing. multiple rabbit yeah. holes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's what I got. There we go. Cubes. Sweet. All right. Drew, I got a question for you from Jamie. Okay. What do you know about the effects of dry climate contributing to dry starts and dry or scratchy fountain pen problems? Our high desert humidity is often 10% or less. I put a few eyedroppers of ink from a small diamine container into a tiny but easier to access aperitif glass. I don't know what that is. And later that day, it was all dried up. That gave me pause about my pens and possibly why I have trouble. Fix. THX. <laughs> well, yes. You are not wrong about your your uh, your hypothesized correlation there, Jamie. It definitely has an impact, for sure. Um, so the more let's use water in this case, since that's what is evaporating uh, out of fountain pen ink, and let's say that the air has water in it sometimes, which it does. If there is more of the evaporating thing in the air, the thing that's evaporating is going to evaporate slower. And the opposite is also true. If there's hardly any of the thing that's being evaporated in the air, then it's going to evaporate much, much faster. Um, It's kind of a gross analogy, but it's not unlike working up a sweat while you're working in Louisiana versus working up a sweat when you're working in Nevada. You're going to feel that very differently because the air is going to keep it on you in Louisiana and it's going to take it off of you in Nevada. And that's a lot of what's happening with the fountain pens is uh, if you are in an arid climate, the air is going to pull that moisture right out as fast as it possibly can. Whereas if you are in a really humid environment and your fountain pen is exposed to the air, then there's not as much of an absence of moisture in the air, so your fountain pen is going to stay wetter longer. Or any liquid that's sitting anywhere is going to remain in its liquid state longer. So with fountain pens, it's, you know, what would you say, Brian? Like 90% water, 80% water, more? It's mostly water. Yeah, pretty much. Like by far, maybe maybe 90%. 95, 90. Yeah, it's up there. Yeah, it's way up there. So most of it is water. So it will evaporate and evaporate quickly, especially... Mm-hmm if you are in the uh, Southwest region, for sure, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I would just say recommend, uh, there's a couple pens I would recommend. Uh, Twisby's usually really good with drying out. They seal really well. Platinum is often a champ at sealing in uh, and out moisture. And then I've had really good luck with Pilot as well. There are a ton of brands that have really great sealing pens within their brands, but those three pretty much anything within those three brands I've had excellent luck with just across all pens within that brand. But there are many, many pens that have very well-engineered inner caps that are effective as well. And if you have a pen that you're particularly in love with and it may not have a great capping system, then you could also try to um, use some Private Reserve Infinity ink. I would give that a shot and see what that does for the pen you're currently using maybe try some samples to see if it actually works. And if it does work, it's a pricier inks, but samples are a great way to try before you buy before committing to a pricier ink. But if it actually works like this ink I've used throughout an entire day before leaving my pen uncapped and writing with it just a little bit every half hour and didn't cap it all day. And it wrote with 
road for me every half hour for an entire day in an office environment though, which is very different than where you're at for sure. But it might help. It might help. It's definitely worth, worth, you know, the sample price for sure. That's pretty much it for me. So I had to look up what does a uh, aperitif depends. It might be a French word. <laughs> What'd you find out? Uh, so it's basically like a, a cocktail type drink that you would have as like an appetite stimulant before a meal. So it's usually very intense flavor, but not high in volume. So it's basically a very, very small glass, sort of like a shot glass, but like a little shot glass, wine glass type of a thing. I think it depends. I don't know. There's all kinds of things related to it. Does it have a stem on it? Um, It looks like it. It doesn't look like there's one specific style or shape or something like that. And a lot of times they can use like a martini glass or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. It depends on the drink. But um, the ones that I'm seeing that I'm probably visualizing, uh, you know, for something like this, it's either like a martini shape or like a small like stemmed, you know, kind of wine glass. Mm -hmm. But it's like very small. Maybe holds an ounce or two. You know, so basically a small open glass, which yeah. and in any yeah. and the 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 wider and more shallow the evaporating liquid is, the more quickly that will evaporate as well. Absolutely. Rather, rather than it being in a uh, tall narrow container, because whatever that you're exposing more of it to the air. So obviously, decanting it into a larger vessel like that might actually make it evaporate quicker than if you just set it out in a little sample container with the uh, cap open. Yeah, the more, yeah, like you said, the more it's exposed to air, the more it's going to evaporate, but yeah. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Relative humidity really makes a huge difference. Um, Yeah. Very cool. For sure. All right. Uh, Okay. my notes. You want to tackle this last one here? All right. Let's do it. This one is coming to us from Constantine. Says, hey, Brian and Drew. Brian... You've documented the insane amount of pens in your personal collection. My question is, within your company, who comes in second? And with how many? And yes, glass pens count. I don't know that glass pens are really going to skew the results of this one. No, no, they're definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. I don't know anybody on our team who has more than like a glass pen. No, it's pretty just, you keep one for the utilitarian aspect of testing inks but you don't need more than i probably one. have the most because i've held on to like every possible every variant we've had for jerbon and Rowan cleaner and all that um and our options for getting them in the u.s are pretty limited we don't have a ton and the ones we do have access to aren't like amazing and yeah. you're still dealing with some variable tipping mm-hmm. widths so you kind of hope you're getting one that's not scratchy and isn't yeah really weird um so to answer this question i mean i don't really keep tabs on everybody's individual pen collections you don't no it's not really a part of you know what we do we're not like big brother watching everybody's pen collections and like some of our team yeah they'll buy pens through us some of them get into vintage things or whatever and they buy them on ebay or whoever you know wherever else some people were into pens before they joined our team and then they get into it more when they're here you know so it's like it's i don't know people are buying pens all the time and using them and stuff like that but we did ask our team like hey we, we kind of know like who's the most into them and it's like who might be more of the front runner. Um, so I think, we, I think we've, you know, without like thoroughly going through everybody's collection, I think we got a couple of standouts, a couple of front runners. Um, and, uh, and I think we have a, a clear winner. So um, one of them who I think is the runner up or the third runner up, I guess, if you're considering the runner up to be whoever has the most next to me Um uh, Jeremy, who's our data analyst. So he was actually into fountain pens before he joined our company, which is actually more rare than you would think. 
Um, so he, uh, he was already into them, joined, and has stayed into them, maybe not so surprisingly. Um, has acquired a whole bunch and all that. So I don't know exactly how many he has, but it's a pretty respectable amount if I'm not uh, mistaken. Uh, but the one who is the front runner up, front runner up, uh, would be actually my executive assistant, Jen. So mm -hmm. she um, wasn't really into pens until she joined us. And then she likes beautiful things. Um, she has also somewhat of a collective nature to her. She, she, she collects uh, gaming dice as well, which I think she has even more gaming dice than she has fountain pens. Um, so if, you, uh, if you're into that, krakendice.com, very cool site. I can see the appeal. I draw a line for myself. I'm like, nope, I can't fall down that rabbit hole. I have enough as it is, despite my son thinking I have no hobbies. I can't get into that too. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Jen, I forget how many pens she has, but I know it's well over 100. Uh, in fact, we kind of joke that like every, like every pay period, she gets a new pen. <laughs> more or less uh she does have a lot of pens so uh yeah it's pretty funny yeah she actually saw this question come through uh because she she helps us monitor the pencast at gulepens.com email address and she saw this question and immediately thought oh no this might be me yeah. so so she reached out to our team and was like hey uh we got a question is this me or does anybody else? And then Jeremy came and was like, well, I have this many. And she's basically like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's me. Yeah, it might be me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely Jen for sure. Um, now, Rachel, Rachel, she, Rachel's in the running too. Um, you know, she's got, she's got a respectable number of pens herself. And I would say just for pure, like, quality of pen, uh, you know, quality compared to quantity. I have a large quantity of pens. I have a lot of really high quality pens, but the ratio of really high quality to maybe lower quality or prototype or whatever kind of pens is going to be higher for me. Uh, or sorry, that, that ratio is going to be lower, lower price, lower, whatever. I have more variants of lower price pens and things like that. Rachel, she doesn't hang on to the lower end stuff. Everything she has is like pretty nice pens. So she has a, I would call it a more curated, nicer collection. Uh, mine is just massive. So I think... Well, yours is also utilitarian in that you collect them for future reference. Yeah, like, I, I... You wouldn't have as many of the same pens if you didn't want to make sure that... Yeah, exactly. I definitely have quite a few pens where I wouldn't... I, I don't keep them just for my own gratification. You know, I keep them for historical reference for, you know, essentially for like the company, the history of the company kind of a thing. Yeah, like all the Lamy special editions, you never go back and be like, oh, you know what I want to use today? One of the Lamy candies, you know? It's just, you need it there because... I mean, those... Lamy's going to... Those I do, yeah, I'm, I am a little more into those, but I have like, like every past variation since we've been carrying it of like the Platinum Preppy and like Preppy highlighters and Preppy, you know, all these other variants that we've had just so we can be like, oh yeah, didn't the old Preppy used to have... The barcode was different and all that, or the nib was colored instead of silver... You know, I keep that stuff so that we can reference it. But I'm not like, ooh, let me use the the 2010 version of the Preppy with the red nib. But like, no, I'm not really using those things very often. But I do, what do you think refer back to them. What do you think your pen collection would look like if you did not work here? And if you just found out about fountain pens, you still liked them, but did not pursue fountain pens as a career option? You did something else? It's really hard to say. It's really hard to say. Because the two were so closely intertwined, yeah, it's impossible to say. I think I, I think I think I would have three pens. I really do. 
I could see. I, I could see that, you like working your way over time, I would, narrowing I would probably, it down to three. You know. Yes, I would probably get a bunch and then realize because I did the same thing with uh, my knives and my watches. I said, you know what? No, I want a couple of ones that I really like, mm. and and that that's what I did. So I, I would probably stick with that three pen rule, but just as an ownership principle, not only an in use principle. I could see that. Yeah, it'd be difficult. And like you, I'm like it's very hard for me to do that because I'm like I, I don't I can't even, I can't even. Well, you're like no too but, like, you know too much. Like you're you're too inter, you're it's too intertwined at this point. Like yeah, like now. But like, if I if I compare it to some of my other daily carry hobbies, I, I, I could I could get there mentally because I've seen myself do that in other areas. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. It's interesting for me. So <laughs> cool. All right. Well, there you have it. Cool. All right. Now we got a lightning round. So uh, you know this is gonna be a shorter episode than usual. Uh, though I've been trying my hardest to not make it short, <laughs> but, uh, Drew pulled some lightning round questions that I think will, this time, you know, we've in the past when we've done this, we've alternated, but this time we're going to do them both. I think they will be a little on the quicker side, so we should be able to make it happen. So, all right. Uh, I don't know. We, we didn't write down who's going to do what. Yeah, how, how about, how about, uh, how about you read the first three? I'll read the second three. Sounds good. All right. So Sterina Frazier says, how old is the oldest pen you have? For me, it used to be older. I've traded a few. Uh, right now, I don't think I have anything prior to the '90s. Really? I, I used to. Ha- yeah, no, I used to have some from more turn of the century. No, sorry, more mid-century. But, you're talking like old, yeah, you're no. talking old by like age of the pen, not how long you've had it, right? Oh yeah, like when oh, the yeah. pen, I mean, when the pen only, was made. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have plenty of pens from ten years ago, but okay. yeah, as far as you know, age of the pen itself, I, I don't have anything right now. I really don't. Yeah. Everything's fairly modern. Yeah, pretty lame answer. Wow. What about you? What a noob. Um, I know. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of my collection is going to be modern pens. Modern being from 2010 on for when we started this business. Um, So I do have some vintage ones, though. It's hard because I don't know exactly what year uh, a lot of my vintage pens are because I bought them, you know, kind of with limited information. And I haven't, you know whatever i haven't researched deeply enough to find out the exact year if it's even possible but i um i think some of the older ones that i have i mean i have parker 51 parker 21 so those are going to be like mid-century um i have an old waterman pink which i think is pretty old i have an old maybe todd swan which i think is probably from the 40s or 50s so i would say like i've got several pens that probably fall into that 1940s 50s category i don't know if i have anything that's older than that but it's it's is the pink their flex nib Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, so it's got a really that's fancy a, nib. Yeah. I don't know a lot about Waterman. All all my Waterman information comes from one one gentleman, but <laughs> I I'm under I believe that the pink is a highly sought it's a pretty, after it's version. It's pretty sought after. So like, <laughs> I have an old Schaefer snorkel, um, which again is going to be I don't think it's going to be quite as old as those. I think that one's sixties, mm, fifties, sixties. Uh, so I don't know, again, I don't know exactly how somebody, how old some of these things are. And I have like an old Schaefer that I don't even know what model it is. It's a, it's a brown kind of smaller Schaefer. Um, I just like kind of traded it with somebody and didn't have good information on it. I don't really know what model it is. So, you know, I've got, I've got several pens that are at least 60, 70 years old, maybe 80. So it's, it's, it's pretty old. It's pretty respectably old, but you know, they still work great. Um, you know, especially like if you want to get into vintage pens and stuff like any pen show, you're pretty much going to be able to get all kinds of cool old stuff because there's so many millions, tens, hundreds of millions of pens that have been made over the years. Uh, a lot of people have parts and restore them and stuff. Anyway, too much, too much. Lightning round. Okay. 
Next next question we have is from PBO2B have gun. Okay. Uh, does pineapple belong on pizza? No. Next question. Yes. Absolutely. No. I think it's actually no. the best place for pineapple to be is on I pizza. I just, I am, no. No. I thought sweet and savory. Oof, no. Yes. On everything. Don't Absolutely. talk to me about maple bacon or oh, honey ham yes. or pineapple on your yes. pizza. Get it away from yes. me. Give me salt and pepper on my meats. And I mean, that's, that's it. That's good too. Don't bring fruit into my meat zone. Don't bring fruit into my tomato zone. I don't need, I know fruit's a tomato, don't give me that. But fr- tomatoes are fruit, I don't wanna hear it. No to the pineapple. No, yes. no, no, all, no. All the pineapple. I would rather have anchovies than pineapple on my pizza. And why are you hating on anchovies? What's wrong with anchovies? Anchovies are just universally considered to be bad. I, I they're, they're, they're very, very salty, but. I'm fair enough. Honestly, maybe 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 I would choose pineapple. They're, I don't <laughs> want either of them, but I'm just I'm trying to illustrate. Maybe anchovies my, and just, pineapple. That could be <clears throat> the next best thing. <clears throat> no, what I like, I like pineapple, and then instead of using tomato sauce, barbecue sauce. What are you doing? Did you did not just say barbecue that sauce? That is my favorite pizza. Is frankly, I am not I like, having this. I like. I am not barbecue sauce as the sauce. Oh my. Extra cheese, chicken, and pineapple, and bacon. That's the best. I'm very glad you that take you the like these off. things, Brian. Like the pineapple, I don't bacon, take... and barbecue sauce. That's what I'm talking about. I love it. I don't want to take these away from you. I'm glad that you have them and they make you happy. But I <laughs> am going to have nightmares about what you just I said. I love it. I love it. It is my favorite. It's mm. my favorite pizza. It mm. makes me happy. My wife, my wife often finds ways to torment me with sweet and savory flavors like her favorite sometimes one time i think that she actually and my brother too my brother zach he was the both of them like i think one time i offered to have you know dinner made for zach and he said you know what i want sloppy joe because he knows i hate sloppy joe because it's that that weird sweet yeah meaty thing and he did it just to upset me Mm. and oh god chicken and waffles with the syrup no, 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 chicken waffles with gravy, sir. No. Gravy. No, Get your syrup out of here. No. Syrup on waffles without chicken, sure. Metro Diner. But if it's... Metro Diner, chicken and waffles with the syrup that's got the hot sauce in it. So good. So good. I like, I like, I like hot things on chicken, but th- th- this... No, no, no. You're... you're, you're mm. I mean, it makes it... You got the no, waffles also, with the syrup and the chicken. It all makes sense. It's all good, man. You're crossing boundaries. So good. You're crossing boundaries. Also, mm. Metro Diner's gone. What do you mean it's gone? It's gone. They, it's not there anymore. Didn't Victim of COVID. Oh, well. Yeah. The one in Will Lawn's gone and the one in Short Pump's gone. I got to eat it at the original Metro Diner down in Jack. Oh, maybe that's still around. I don't know. Oh, okay. That might still be there. Yeah. It was good. Anyway. Well, we learned that Brian, oh, Brian has better taste than Drew. I am upset at you. <laughs> All right. And Make Right Stuff says, now that cake versus pie, man, I'm getting hungry. Ask these food questions. <laughs> now that cake versus pie has been debated, cookies or cupcakes? Cupcakes. Really? Yes. It's just, it's more substantial. I mean, it's more substantial. Now, what are you talking about? It's, it's just, there's more, it's a larger, more expensive object. There's value there. Cupcakes are more expensive than cookies. You need it. I've eaten some cookies that feel like they are worth some stuff. Let me tell you. No, you're, you're right. This one's close for me. Now, if it were muffins, I would absolutely choose muffins over cookie any day of the week. Cupcakes are a little different because 
sometimes they can be a little too much with the icing. Um, mm. So I, I could see cookies. I could see cookies. But I feel like if you are if you say, hey, would you like this cookie or like this cupcake? I, I would feel like, like, well, let me get the larger object. I feel like I should go with the cupcake. But if you're talking like one of like pretty, a massive. That's some pretty big cookies. Yeah, no, if, if you're talking about one of these monster cookies with like big honking chunks all over them, then okay, yeah, sure. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Um, you're a cookie man? I mean, the, the, all of this sounds good to me. I'm not hating any of this conversation. <laughs> um, I mean, I like them both, but like to me, like it's not as it's not as much of like a one versus the other as like a cake versus pie. Like to me, I'm well. It is like, now. Cookies or cupcakes to me, I'm just like, well, I'll just have like one of each. Like it's not like I feel like it's one or the <laughs> other. Um, but I would I would probably lean towards cookies. Yeah, yeah, I like cookies. Now that this is one of those things where I will say quality matters. If you're talking about a crappy cookie and a crappy cupcake, I'll pick the crappy cupcake. But if you're talking about like the best of the best cookie and the best of the best cupcake, I'll probably pick the cookie. I think because like like cake and pie, I think one has higher peaks and lower valleys, and I think that cookies can max out at a higher point than cupcakes can. I think I've had a lot cupcakes. I've had a lot more mediocre cupcakes. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but the lowest, like most dry, sad gas station cookie, I would pick a cheapo plastic wrapped little Debbie cupcake over that cookie, if you know what I mean. Mm. So, um, but like, have you had one of those crazy obnoxious cupcakes at Disney though? Like where it's like the the, you know, one of those like crazy peanut butter and jelly cupcakes or something like that. You can do some crazy stuff with cupcakes, you can do some, too. You can do some pretty wild stuff with cupcakes. Yeah, but 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 again, a lot of it is overwhelming. It's just like so sugar, 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 That's true. Sugar. They do get pretty intense. But I don't, like, yeah. the cupcake to me is a lot of, a, it's like a commitment. You can't just be like, oh, I'll just have like half this cupcake now and then I'll just like save the rest for later. Uh, like, so you can't handle the, the full cupcake then. Huh? I mean, I, that, believe me, Drew, I can handle it. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. I can handle some cupcakes. <laughs> But I don't know, and it like they're just they're messier. They are. Or, they are. You know, I don't know. Okay, I think you've I think you've pushed me over to the cookie zone. I think you have. There's nothing wrong with you. I like cookies. I like cookies. I'll, I'll join you over the cookie zone. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, Sarah K. Sarah K. Dietz asks us which inks are you currently using? Hmm. Mm. Um. I mean, I'm always using a bunch of inks because I never clean my pens, but. Um, <laughs> Let's see here. I got a Robert Oster Blue Water Ice. That's kind of like my go-to. I got a big bottle. Which of ones it. are you using? Not inked. I'm using which, it. Which using ones it right do you now. have inked up? No, I've got okay, that okay, ink. Okay. I'm using it. I'm using. Um, let's see here. I just. I mean, I just used Nibbler's Black because I did the Nib Nook for the Pilot Custom Nine Twelve recently. Um, I have just recently used for the Lamy Two Thousand video. I used uh, Lamy Crystal as you right. So that mm-hmm. one's pretty recent. I do like that color a lot. Um, ones that I've got on the docket to use are the new Monyo chromo shading inks. Um, yeah, man. I've got all of those here. So those are going to be coming up next. Um, yeah. So that's what I got. What about you? Nice. Well, as you know, I have three pens inked up. Mm. Uh, I have this uh, old, you know, Pilot, uh, no, no, sorry, Namiki Impressions here that I have inked up with Diamine Hope Pink. Ooh, okay. I have my Smoke Twisby Swipe inked up with Diamine Marine. Mm. And yes, Pilot Stargazer, technically a Pilot Stella 90S, inked up with Diatromentous Lilac, mm. which is a very, very nice purple, Brian. It is a good color. Yeah. Very nice purple. So I've got pink, purple, and turquoise nice very uh yeah dual toned kind of a thing you got going yeah. on yeah kind of kind of like that nice all right yeah next up 
Next up is from Lunar Knight 22, and the Lunar Knight asks us, Shimmer, Sheen, Color Shifting, and more. What special inks do you love most? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I do like special inks. Um, Sheen, for sure. I'm a fan of Sheen. The Color Shift thing, I'm getting more into it. It's a newer thing. Um, I've always found them appealing. But honestly, I just love classic shading, like heavy shading inks. That's, that's more of my go-to. Um, I think the other ones are cool. But, you know, you get a really good shading inks like Drew the Dye Mine Marine or Robert Oster Blue Water Ice or, you know, those are just, mm, they just always hit the right spot no matter when I pick them up. Never, never have waned in my love for shading inks. How about you? Absolutely. Uh, easy for me, and that is color shifting, multi-tonal chroma shading inks. Mm. I love those because they are just as exciting as shading, but with some extra fun and pizzazz. Mm. However, you get this it's among these special feature inks, they give you that special visual component without any additional maintenance. And that is absolutely my jam. Mm. I like the fact that I have only three pens because I hate cleaning my pens. I don't want to have an overwhelmingly intimidating experience when I do clean my pens. I want it to be easy. I want it to be simple. And if you say that I can get a simple, easy cleaning experience while also getting a fun ink adventure on the paper, please sign me up. Yes, please put it in my pen. That's true. Shimmer inks and sheening, heavy sheeners, they they tend to be the higher maintenance side of it. Not worth it. Fair enough. I love the way they look. I love it when other people use them and I can see them on Instagram, but not in my pens. Okay. All right. All right. Last one. And then finally, Michael Not 96, favorite Lamy Safari colors. His is petrol. Petrol's good. I like that color a lot. Petrol's good. Petrol. It's right. Charcoal. I like dark lilac. I like the matte black. Honestly, (laughs) I really like, excuse me, all the matte colors. Those are my favorites. You didn't even hear what I said, Drew. Look at you, just taking off your earphones. Uh, you probably said you like the Lamy 2000. <laughs> Safari colors. <laughs> Safari Did you colors. say something about blue water ice, Lamy 2000? No, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I like all the matte, the darker matte Safari yeah. colors. Those are my favorites. Yeah. So if you had to choose between petrol versus dark lilac, what would you pick? Oh, gosh. I really like, yeah. I really like them both. I think dark lilac because... It's iconic, and mm-hmm. I have good memories associated with that. I really like the petrol color too, though. Honestly, it would be really if I had to choose between the two, it'd be really, really tough. It'd be really yeah. tough. I like them both. You know what mine is, right? Uh, yours is going to be the brown, right? The matte brown. Yes, the it is. Brown. I just went. That's what that's I was, what I was grabbing. That. That's what you were doing back there. It's my brown bear pen. There you go. He's the best. Bear, bear. We're well, not brown bear. Just brown. Brown. All caps. Brown. That's right. rotations. Line friends. Brown. It's got to be yelled. Yelled in all caps. That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. He's the best. <laughs> I like the Vista, too. I don't know if technically that one would count. I mean, obviously, we had the Vista Black, which is what we did as our exclusive. I, I really like the Vista. Technically, I don't know if you would... I mean, it's, I don't know if it's in the Safari class anymore, but I didn't, I didn't include that one, but I, I would put that up there, too. Yep. All right, that's our lightning round. Brian, we have concluded it. All right, good stuff. Well, that's going to be it for today. Don't go away yet because I do have some fun facts. This actually... I will stay with bated breath. I want to thank you all for watching. Leave us some feedback. Let us know how we're doing. We're going to be back next week with a regular show. 
Um, but in the meantime, you can check out googlypens.com for fountain pen, ink, and paper needs. You can subscribe to YouTube, Instagram, all that. Um, email us at pencast at googlypens.com, especially if you're an audio listener and you got some questions for us. And my random fun fact for today is not related to anything that we were talking about, but I did want to inform you that over your lifetime, you'll produce enough saliva to fill 500 bathtubs or two or two full swimming pools. So it's about 40,000 liters or 10, 10 and gallons of saliva. In fact, you'll, you'll, you'll produce about six cups of saliva before the day's out today. No one listening needed that visual. Think about that. Think about swimming in a, a no, pool of your own saliva. No, I don't need to think about Nobody needs to think about that. So much saliva. That's so God, much saliva. God. Isn't that amazing? Ah. Human body's so cool. I, I, I mean, I guess, yeah. I think I'm producing more than but, six cups today because we've been talking Brian, about cupcakes God. and cookies and all this other stuff. <laughs> Oh God! I think I've done six cups. I don't while need to think. Why we've done this recording? I've done six. six I don't need to think about your saliva tub, Brian. Stop I'm it! Saying. Some people salivate oh. more than others. There's got to be an, you know, this is an average. This is an average oh, here. God. <laughs> you know what? If anybody's here past your Rubik's cube discussion, they, they, they are probably interested in you talking about bathtubs of saliva. So, hey, probably not. But you are by accident. So here you go. You're welcome. Great. You're welcome, world. Um, that's that's all we got for this week. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll uh, catch you on the next one. Thanks, everybody, and right on. Bye.